we're at a time when everything is at stake, where we have to fight for our patients' lives. If we don't fight and we don't lead the charge, if we don't work with our partners and our newly elected champions, if we don't work with these 73% of Americans who believe that Roe versus Wade should be the law of the land, then who is going to? I'm Dan Diamond. This is Pulse Check, and that was Planned Parenthood President Lena Wen vowing to take on the Trump administration and Republicans seeking to restrict abortion access. I'd bet a lot of listeners know Dr. Wen. She's been a prominent healthcare writer and speaker and was named Baltimore's health commissioner all before she turned 32 years old. She's been head of Planned Parenthood for several months now. And on this episode, you'll hear our conversation on the organization and its future, as well as what she's learned about healthcare after overseeing Baltimore's health department. Just a note for me, over the years we've done several episodes of Pulse Check on abortion. It's arguably the most sensitive issue that comes up on my beat. Readers and listeners understandably feel strongly about it. For additional perspectives, including my interview with Marjorie Denfelser, the head of Susan B. Anthony List, check the show notes. You'll hear from Dr. Wen in a moment, but first, here's a clip from Tuesday night's State of the Union address, part of a larger section when President Trump's criticized Democrats on their abortion legislation. Lawmakers in New York cheered with delight upon the passage of legislation that would allow a baby to be ripped from the mother's womb moments from birth. These are living, feeling, beautiful babies who will never get the chance to share their love and their dreams with the world. And then we had the case of the governor of Virginia, where he stated he would execute a baby after birth to defend the dignity of every person. I am asking Congress to pass legislation to prohibit the late-term abortion of children who can Dr. Lena Wen, welcome to Politico Pulse Check. Thank you. I'm happy to be here with you today. You were at the State of the Union on Tuesday night as a guest of Speaker Pelosi as President Trump railed against abortion and called for a new ban later in pregnancy. What is it like to be you at that moment? I was extremely angry and frustrated because what I was listening to was deliberate misinformation and frank lies that fly in the face of medicine and science and were being said for political purposes. We know what President Trump is trying to get at. He's trying to get at the end of Roe versus Wade, to get rid of a safe legal abortion and to go to a time when women had to resort to other methods and thousands of women died every year. That's what's at stake for me as a doctor, as the president of Planned Parenthood. Trump's administration has pushed regulations to hamper funding to your organization. HHS has advanced rules that would make it easier for health workers to deny abortions. The Supreme Court is now tilting conservative with Justice Kavanaugh replacing Justice Kennedy. Is this the most perilous moment for abortion rights since Roe versus Wade? Yes. We have a situation now where, with the Supreme Court, 
one in three women of reproductive age, which is 25 million women, could soon be living in states where abortion is outlawed or banned. And this is not theoretical. There are 16 cases that are one step away from the Supreme Court. And if any of them are heard, and there's one case that could be heard, that could be that could be ruled on as early as tomorrow. You're talking about Louisiana. That's right. Roe could be further eroded or completely overturned. And we need to talk about what's at stake, and what's at stake is patients' lives. Well, we will talk about your vision for this organization and what you are fighting for now. But I, I want to just step back and, and frame the conversation a bit. There are many folks who will listen to this podcast and agree with everything that you have to say. And you have prominent supporters and champions, Speaker Pelosi, for instance. But at the same time, there are many Americans who don't trust Planned Parenthood. They say that abortion is tantamount to murder. About one in five Americans think abortion should be illegal under any circumstance. What would you say to those Americans? I would say that you are entitled to your personal view And I respect that. But please do not impose your personal views on everybody else. And we should respect medicine and science. We know from science, from data, that abortion is a safe, legal medical procedure that one in four women will have in our lifetimes. It is part of the full spectrum of reproductive health care, which is health care and shouldn't be treated any differently than any other aspect of health care. As a physician, I've taken care of women in all different types of circumstances. Women who, I remember actually had a patient who found out in her second trimester that she was carrying twins that were missing diaphragms and would never develop their lungs. And so if she'd carried the twins to term, they would have suffocated upon birth. And so she made a deeply personal deeply painful and difficult decision. And somebody else may have made a different decision. But it's my job as her doctor not to judge her or shame her or coerce her. It's to give her the information and the services she needs to make the best decision she can about her health. That's right for her and for her family. It's my job to trust my patients and to trust women. There's a bill in Virginia that's gotten a lot of attention, backed by Democrats, to loosen abortion restrictions in the state. And when Governor Ralph Northam tried to defend the bill, some of his comments, which actually got to what you're just talking about, this idea of abnormalities in a fetus and what might happen if the woman went into labor with that fetus who had abnormalities, what might happen? President Trump alluded to this in his speech. He said that Northam was calling for execution of babies, regardless of what Governor Northam was trying to say. And he said... Everything has been misinterpreted. He's talking about what's current medical practice, what what you just described with the woman with the uh, twins with missing diaphragms. Do you understand why the imagery and why the idea has inflamed so many on the anti-abortion side? The only problem, though, is that these are lies. This is a manufactured crisis that's not based on medical reality. And I want to explain what that medical reality is. The medical reality is that 99% of abortions occur before 21 weeks. And those that occur later are because of extreme circumstances, like grave danger to a woman's life. And fetal demise, 
I mean, I've treated patients who had unfortunately suffered fetal demise. And who would want a woman to carry that, that fetus to term and to deliver weeks later? I mean, it's just, this, these are, this is medicine. Medicine is complex. It's different in every situation. And what I know as a doctor is that it's up to the doctor and the patient to wade through this very difficult environment together, not for politicians to come in and tell us what, what it is that a woman should do about her body and her health. And I actually want to address um, Virginia, New York. Um, people have talked about this, I would say, in also misleading ways. What's actually happening is that in the last seven years, there have been over 400 bills signed into law that directly restrict abortion access. These are things that are not based on medicine or science or protection for patients in any way. Actually, these are things that harm women and have no basis in medicine. They're just the only reason is to shame and coerce people. And these are things like forced ultrasounds, forced waiting periods. And what the legislators are doing in New York and in Virginia and states around the country is to pass proactive legislation to repeal these bad policies so that if Roe is overturned, we know that states are going to be the critical backstop. And these proactive legislation will protect women and our patients in those states. The Virginia legislation, for instance, would seek to change a rule where right now a woman would need to get verification from three different doctors before getting an abortion late in pregnancy, if, if, even if that abortion was medically necessary. And health groups have said the current rules in Virginia are archaic, hence the need for some changes. I, I want to talk about your background and decision to come to Planned Parenthood. You're the first doctor to lead Planned Parenthood in decades. That's gotten a lot of attention. Your interviews have focused on how you want to take this organization in a broader healthcare direction. But I actually wanted to talk about another first. You're the first member of the Association of Healthcare Journalists to lead this organization. And you do have real journalism experience. You blogged for NPR, you've written a book. I remember seeing you at health journalism events and conferences. How has that background shaped how you think about a role like this, where media coverage really does play a major factor in how Planned Parenthood is interpreted? I think of my background as a doctor and as a writer in the same way, which is that I tell the stories of my patients and I give a voice to people who want their story to be in their voice to be heard. I decided to go into the ER because I never wanted to turn any patient away. And in the ERs also how I saw that just providing good care isn't enough. If there are bad policies that are threatening to take away people's care. I mean, and so those are the stories that I heard as a physician, those are the stories that I tell as a, as a writer, as a journalist, and those are the same stories that I tell now as I'm advocating for my patients. So I see this as being no different in the sense that my entire life I've been doing these two things, which is providing health care and at the same time fighting to protect access to that care, whether it's through advocacy directly with our legislators, advocacy through mobilization and organizing, or advocacy through writing and journalism. You sat for a BuzzFeed interview about a month ago uh, about Planned Parenthood's vision. The headline on that story was, quote, Planned Parenthood's new president wants to focus on non-abortion health care. 
so services like opioids and diabetes, uh, diabetes management. You tweeted that BuzzFeed's headline, quote, completely misconstrued your mission. Can you explain that? Actually, there was an initial headline that I responded to. So I'll address both of them. There was an initial headline, and I'm not repeating this for verbatim now because I don't remember exactly word for word what it said, but it talked about how I am backing off from politics, that because I come from a healthcare background, the insinuation is that I am a doctor, and therefore I am taking us in a direction that is not political. That's what I was responding to. And that's wrong. And that's wrong because we're at a time when everything is at stake, where we have to fight for our patients' lives. If we don't fight and we don't lead the charge, if we don't work with our partners and our newly elected champions, if we don't work with the 73% of Americans who believe that Roe versus Wade should be the law of the land, then who is going to? I mean, it's at this time exactly right now that we should be fighting with everything that we have. I mean, I have said, and I truly believe this, that healthcare shouldn't be political. Getting medications for your children, vaccinations, breast and cervical cancer screenings, that shouldn't be political. But because it's been made political, it's my job to then fight with everything I have, including through political uh, mechanisms and with our 12 million supporters who expect this and will stand with us on this to fight. And on the question that you raised about the other services, Planned Parenthood is proud to provide the full range of reproductive health care and all healthcare. I mean, we see ourselves as a beacon, a lighthouse of sorts, that patients come to us because they trust us. And for many of our patients, we are their only source of healthcare. We are proud to provide abortion care because it is part of the full spectrum of reproductive healthcare. We're also proud to provide so many other services, including STI tests, HIV tests. Um, We're proud to provide um, now starting some primary care mental health services because our patients are whole people. They don't just come in with one need. When they come to us for birth control, it's also our duty to help them with so many of the other things that they might have going on in their lives, too. That's our duty to serve our patients the best that we can. Well, when you talk about the political resistance to some of these non-abortion services, how does that manifest? Who is exactly complaining about that? I don't know that people are complaining about these additional services that we provide. Because or or we're politicizing, politicizing Planned Parenthood. I mean, that's your contention, right? That these other things that you have spent years working on, now that you're a Planned Parenthood, they have been criticized. I've spoken to anti-abortion groups who say, we don't have any truck with Planned Parenthood doing these other things. It's the abortion issue that we can't get over. And what I would say to those individuals is that they don't understand medical care. In medical care, we don't see abortion as one thing. Abortion is part of the full spectrum of reproductive health care. That's just good medical care. In the same way that we don't see reproductive health care as being separate from the rest of a woman's or person's body. That's just not how medicine works. And we as Planned Parenthood, I will say about abortion access that we will never abandon women. We will never abandon the women who come to us seeking abortions. Abortion may be just over 3% of the total services that we provide, but that is a core part of what we do. That's healthcare. 
that number that you just quoted, 3% of the services you provide, what, what you're saying there is that Planned Parenthood does, while hundreds of thousands of abortions per year, there are hundreds of thousands of other things you're doing as well. That's that's at least how it's been represented to me. And I've I've looked at your annual report, but fact checkers and anti-abortion groups would say that that's somewhat misleading. The, the equivalent would be saying, uh, like at a movie theater, there might only be 40 screenings of the movie that day, but there's a lot more popcorn sold. You would never say that the movie theater, 3% of, of its activities are movies. Movies are the thing that gets people to the movie theater. So the idea that Planned Parenthood is only doing 3% of its services as, as abortion, isn't it fair to say that abortion is the core goal of what you're doing? I don't think that's a an accurate representation. The accurate representation of what we at Planned Parenthood do is reproductive health care. Abortion is part of reproductive health care. It's important for us to contextualize abortion as one of the many aspects of reproductive health care, which is standard health care. The way that we calculate our percentages is the same as any other healthcare system that I've ever worked for. That's standard practice within medicine, and that's what we follow, the gold standard of healthcare within Planned Parenthood. There are anti-abortion advocates who have sat down and joined this podcast. Marjorie Dannenfelser, the head of Susan B. Anthony List, arguably your counterpart. She's the most prominent anti-abortion leader. I'm curious if you've sat down with them, if you have any sort of relationship with anti-abortion advocates. Well, I first would contest your terminology. I think it's accurate to say that they are anti-abortion people, but it would not be accurate to say that I am a pro-abortion person. That doesn't make sense to me in the same way that you would never call a cardiologist pro-cardiac stenting, pro-cardiac surgery. I am for the full range of healthcare services that a patient needs in their lives. But as Planned Parenthood's leader, aren't you the most prominent figure in the abortion rights fight? You're out there fighting for access to abortion, among other things. Absolutely. And I think that's the right terminology, that we are pro-abortion access. We are pro-reproductive health care. We are pro the full range of services for women's health and for all people. We believe in health care as a fundamental human right that is guaranteed to all, regardless of ability to pay, immigrant status, etc. I would be happy to sit down with professionals who are in medical care who support the ability of all people to receive health care services. So that's a no, though, that you are not having weekly coffees with your opponents on the other side of this. I would be happy to engage with anyone who stands with us on, on the importance of getting care to all people. Many of the Democrats targeted by anti-abortion advocates, Senator Heidi Heitkamp, uh, Senator Claire McCaskill, Senator Joe Donnelly in North Dakota, Missouri, Indiana, lost in the midterms. I'm curious, doctor, are there candidates that you're targeting for 2020 or, or even sooner that Planned Parenthood would either like to see elected or alternately leave office? Well, look, we saw what happened in the last midterms, which is that people, particularly women of color and and women overall, voted in record numbers for the most diverse house that we've ever that we've ever had and the most pro-reproductive health majority 
in the House of Representatives, we have now also in states, we have 25 governors and 19 state legislatures, including in D.C., that strongly stand in favor of, of women's health. We have 11 count and counting um, Planned Parenthood alumni who have been elected to, to office, including Senator Tina Smith. We're actually we're seeing Roe versus Wade, the support for Roe versus Wade at is all time high at 73 percent and that abortion access is a mobilizing issue for seven in 10 Democrats compared to four in 10 Republicans. I mean, we are seeing quite the trend for people, all people, recognizing that Reproductive healthcare is just like any other aspect of healthcare, and we know that voters in 2019, in 2020, are going to be expecting that um, that the champions whom they elected before are going to keep on standing with us on these important issues, and that we'll elect even more champions going forward. So, if that's the trend, how do you explain the losses of McCaskill, Heitkamp, and, and Donnelly? How do we explain the wins that have occurred in so many other parts of the country as well? I mean, we, um, as of last count, we have 45 million more people who are living in states where their reproductive freedoms will be protected as a result of the turnout in the in, in the 2018 midterms. And so we need to keep on having candidates who will stand with us and stand strongly on the issues of reproductive rights and reproductive freedom, understanding that it's in the context of other things, in the context of healthcare. I mean, healthcare is the number one issue that voters have identified. We know that people want more healthcare and not less, that voters in Idaho, Utah, Nebraska voted for Medicaid expansion. So we need to contextualize reproductive health care in health care. And we have to talk about it as an economic justice and an economic opportunity issue as well. A hundred years ago, Planned Parenthood was founded on the idea that if your body is not your own, then you cannot be truly free or equal. And that's still the same principle and freedom that we fight for today. I'd like to take the conversation beyond your goals at Planned Parenthood and just think about what this moment means as someone who's in healthcare, who's a physician, and the Trump administration has advanced a lot of different priorities that affect work that you either do now or have done in the past. For instance, right before we sat down, we were chatting about the new HIV plan that the Trump administration is advancing, where the president is promising to end HIV transmission in America by 2030. Isn't that the kind of goal that could be bipartisan, that there could be a lot of support regardless of political party? Sure, but President Trump needs to follow science and evidence and do what public health advocates have been saying for years is what we should do instead of the opposite. One of the first things that he did when he got into office was to implement and expand the global gag rule, which is causing programs, HIV programs, treatment programs, prevention programs to stop around the world. And for listeners who don't know, that's that's also known as the Mexico City policy, where the U.S. government is making it harder for NGOs abroad, non-governmental organizations to get funding if they're also providing abortion services. So it has a ripple effect on healthcare around the globe. Well, it's specifically saying that any organization that provides education, referrals, advocacy, anything to do with the full range of reproductive health care, including abortion access, cannot receive U.S. assistance in any way for anything, even for things like nutritional assistance for children, HIV programs. I mean, we're seeing that in 
in Latin America, in Sub-Saharan Africa, that multiple programs have had to shut down their entire operations. And it's making HIV that much harder to fight around the world. We're also seeing now with President Trump's attacks on on the U.S., any time now, it could it could be even this week or next week, the Title X gag rule could come out, which would harm 4 million American women and families. A Title X is what provides for STI screenings, HIV tests, affordable birth control, for breast and cervical cancer screenings. And it would be, I can't imagine how it is that we're trying to fight the HIV epidemic when we are taking away the ability of people to literally get their HIV tests. And for listeners who don't know what the Title X funding rule is, doctor, can you explain why that means so much for Planned Parenthood and other community centers as well? The Title X gag rule is an attempt by President Trump to censor what it is that doctors can tell our patients. So if you're a woman and you're going to a clinic that receives federal assistance so that you can get care and you ask questions about abortion, your doctor is not allowed to tell you how or where to get an abortion, even if your life is at risk. I can't tell you how angry this makes me as a physician because it is unethical. It's unconscionable. It's illegal. It forces me to compromise the oath that I took when I became a doctor. We as Planned Parenthood have decided that if this rule goes through, we cannot accept gagged funds because we will not force our clinicians to practice unethical medicine. We will not compromise our patients' abilities to receive the best care possible. But what that would mean is that We serve 1.6 million patients through Title X. There are 4 million patients served overall through Title X. Fewer clinics, fewer health centers will receive Title X funding. Now, we as Planned Parenthood, we are going to do everything we can to fight through every avenue, through litigation, through legislation, through working with our donors and our supporters. And I want our patients to know who are listening that if you are one of the 1.6 million patients who come to us through Title X funding, or if you're planning to come to our health centers for your care, Our doors are open today. Our doors are open tomorrow. We've been under attack for over 100 years, and we are going to keep fighting because it's our promise to you that we will be here to provide care no matter what. Well, Title 10 funding, if if you give that up, will that force you to cut other services? Will that force Planned Parenthood to change its strategy in some way? Well, again, we are going to be fighting this rule through every channel. And there are many things that we are exploring. There are over 100 groups, nursing groups, medical groups, public health groups that have signed on with us to decry this unethical rule. And we are going to be fighting this for some time to come. This is the problem. Imagine how much more we could do if we weren't spending all of our resources and our energy fighting these attacks. Imagine how much more healthcare we could provide to communities in need. We have over 600 health centers around the country, and for so many of our patients, we are their only source of care. Even in very difficult environments, and I'm in the process now of doing a national listening tour and visiting our affiliates around the country, and they do such incredible work. I mean, I'm amazed by, in Ohio, we have a program called Healthy Moms, Healthy Babies, that where we have outreach workers and nurses that do home visiting to reduce infant mortality and maternal mortality. In northern 
Northern and Southern California, we have partnerships um, to provide mental health services and are now working with some of our schools to do reproductive health education and co-location of services, including with behavioral health services and schools. I mean, we do so much um, interesting, innovative work that directly meets the needs of people where they are. Our promotorist programs for community health outreach, we partner, including with um, with Native American reservations, um, with Mexican consulates. I mean, we do great work around the country, specifically meeting the needs of people where they are. Imagine how much more we could be doing if we're not trying to backfill for these cuts that are happening, it seems like, on a daily basis. I mean, we're fighting for the ability of our patients to get something as basic as health care. Please help us do that. I would argue that at this time in our history when maternal mortality rates are soaring, when health disparities are increasing, that the country, the world, needs Planned Parenthood now more than ever. We want to be and we will be expanding our reach and expanding our impact. But help us do that and see the impact that we already make every day in communities around the country. You mentioned some of the systemic problems in the U.S. healthcare system, social determinants of health and, and what those mean, things like lack of access to nutrition, good housing, and how that impacts healthcare outcomes. I grew up in Baltimore, Maryland, a city that you know well as the former city health commissioner. My dad was a doctor at Hopkins. He stayed on staff there. So we would drive down to Hopkins and drive through these sometimes burnt out neighborhoods to get to this gilded hospital. Uh, with its own security force. And, and honestly, it, it shaped how I think about healthcare and, and inequality in America. You got to run that city's healthcare system for four years. Where does a city like Baltimore stand now? And what needs to happen, even well beyond Planned Parenthood, what needs to happen to improve healthcare delivery in America's mid-level cities? Well, I was privileged to serve as the health commissioner in Baltimore for four years, and I thought about one statistic every day because I lived it every day, which is this 20-year gap in life expectancy that exists between neighboring areas in Baltimore that you could drive just a couple of miles and a child born today can expect to live 85 years or 65 years. The 20-year difference I thought about all the time for a number of reasons. One is that it's such a poignant example of how the health care that we get does not determine, certainly it's not the only determinant of how long people live. Some studies show that up to 90% of what determines how long you live is the air that you breathe, where you happen to live, where you go to school, whether you go to school, these other social determinants. And I also thought about this number a lot because I have a young child. I have a, a one-and-a-half-year-old son. And I thought a lot about how privileged he is. But also, what is this world that I'm bringing him into where we have these profound disparities where not that long ago in Baltimore, in 2009, an African-American baby born was five times more likely to die than a white baby in our city. But then I also think about the work that we did in Baltimore, for example, to reverse these trends. We were able to, within seven years, we cut the infant mortality in our city by 38% and reduced the disparity between black and white infant mortality by over 50%. The opioid epidemic was raging, still is raging in our city and around the country. And we saved, as a result of my blanket prescription for naloxone, we saved nearly 3,000 lives in three years. 
We started doing mental health services and expanded mental health in 120 of our 180 of our schools. I mean, there are we implemented and expanded safe streets to treat gun violence as a public health issue and saved potentially hundreds of lives that way. I mean, there are a lot of examples around the country, not just in Baltimore, of how treating these social determinants is so important. It's actually very similar to the work that Planned Parenthood does in understanding that you cannot treat a person is not just one organ system or one medical procedure that they happen to have or need in their lifetimes. It's about all these other factors, too. And I'm so proud that Planned Parenthood has always been about looking at the social determinants of health, too. Even if we haven't always addressed it as such, that's what we do, that when patients come to us, not only do they get their birth control, they, if they need housing assistance, if they need to be connected to immigration resources, that's also what they get at our health centers. And that's the kind of work that I'm so proud to represent and to expand. I respect your ability to bring the conversation back to Planned Parenthood, but I'm not letting you off the hook on my Baltimore questions just yet. One would be you were commissioner for four years. You, you came to Planned Parenthood last fall. What do you wish in retrospect you'd done differently in Baltimore? What what went unfulfilled? Because being commissioner of a health department is is not an easy task. You're inheriting staff of 1,000 people, city workers who may have had different priorities or trying to change the ship in a relatively short amount of time. What, what went unfulfilled? By definition, the work of public health is never finished. I wasn't looking to leave my job. I loved my job. My home is still in Baltimore. I'm raising my family in Baltimore. I am. I loved the team that I had in 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 Baltimore. Many of whom came to work with me specifically at the at the health department. And I look, and there are there's so much that I wish that I had the chance to see through. Our work around opioids. We had done a lot of work on harm reduction and saving lives. We were getting to the next phase, which is working with our city hospitals to make sure that we treat addiction as the disease that it is. We became the first city in the country to implement levels of care to make sure that we treat addiction and mental health in the same way that we treat that that we treat any other illness. The levels of care have launched. I would have loved to see the next stage of the implementation. We also had a and have a major grant with um, Center for for uh, Medicare Medicaid Services. Um, to uh, for accountable health communities, specifically integrating social determinants of health at the time that somebody went in for a visit at a hospital, that they would also be referred to other social re- resources. That's something that I wish that I could see through. That project is ongoing, but I wish that, that I could see through that. Did it get harder to do your job under the Trump administration as a oh, city health commissioner? Absolutely. The dynamics were very different between the Obama administration and the the Trump administration. This is not a a partisan conversation. This just is the reality. Um, One example is that we had a program, still is running in, in the city, as I'll explain, for teen pregnancy prevention, a program that was very successful in 16 years, reduced the team birth rates in our city by 61%, 17 years rather, by 61%. And that program was cut precipitously with no explanation. And this is, we're talking about comprehensive sex ed for middle school and high school students. So we sued the Trump administration. Along with some other cities, including absolutely, Seattle. Absolutely, absolutely. And we were very um, happy that our funding was restored and 20,000 of our youth are now able to continue to, to receive this. But it's very difficult also when funding challenges 
continue coming. Um, there were cuts also to STI, HIV prevention. Another reason why I'm so befuddled by this announcement by the Trump administration about preventing HIV. I mean, it's a good cause, but when what you do is completely in conflict with what you say, you got to question what's happening at the end of the day. I feel like it's fair to say that you've lived your life in a hurry. You went to college at the age of 13. You were health commissioner of a city at 31. You're now Planned Parenthood CEO. You got the job when you were 35. What have you, you had? You know a lot about my life. Well, I'm interviewing you. I mean, <laughs> I, I find sometimes when I'm prepping for an interview, there are only a few articles I have to read. The problem was there are so many articles about you. I even found the Date Lab column from the Washington Post from more than a decade ago. Uh, so it's fair to say that you've had a prominent life for a long time. But in accomplishing all of those things, what have you had to give up? Well, that's a, a difficult question. I mean, I feel like right now as I'm speaking to you, I, I, I think I have to give up a lot of my personal life with my family. And I don't say this in any way to complain or to, or, or to take away from what this job is, which is a really profound privilege to be able to defend women's rights and people's rights and provide health care every day. I mean, it's it's a profound privilege and a, and a choice that I feel so lucky that I had the opportunity to, and a challenge that, such an opportunity that, that, that I had to take on. But I have a, a young son. And nowadays, I rarely see him. Um, our offices are in D.C. and New York. I live in Baltimore. I, I'm also traveling around the country because it's important to do so. I want to be on the front lines, seeing the care that's delivered around the country and meeting our advocates and our supporters around the country. And I have an aggressive schedule of going to see 20 of our affiliates in five months. But I leave very early in the morning. And if I'm even able to get home and if I'm on the road, I'm not able to get home. I'm not seeing my, my son. My husband and I had some very difficult conversations when we were deciding about this job. And at the end of the day, actually, it did come down to our son. And it was, what is the future that we want for him? And I got pregnant not long after Trump was elected to be the president. And my pregnancy coincided with so many attempts to, um, to take away the Affordable Care Act and to gut Medicaid. And I thought a lot about, at that time, how fortunate I was that I didn't have to make those trade-offs in what turned out to be a high-risk pregnancy. I didn't have to make those trade-offs between getting an ultrasound and monitoring for 24 hours or paying for food and rent for my family. And then I thought about the world that I'm bringing my son into, this world that of hatred and racism and misogyny and bigotry and homophobia and transphobia. And I thought, what, who, what kind of parent would I be? if I have an opportunity to do something to change that world, and I'm not doing that. And why should I be telling my students who I teach and these young people who came to work with me at the health department, what kind of mentor and role model would I be for them? If I were telling them they should be doing everything they can to fight, and I'm not doing my part. And that's why I'm here, but I very much recognize the personal cost of this. And I'm thankful to my husband for making this decision with me, for stepping up in childcare duties in so many different ways. And I think I'm, you know, I think also back to my mother and my father when we first immigrated to this country and the trade offs that they had to make. They had to work many jobs, many long hours, and they 
rarely saw me growing up. And that's not something that I had wanted for, for my family. But at the same time, it's also such an honor and a privilege to be doing something that I truly believe in and am fighting for every day. Last question. The jobs that you have had, the job that you have, Baltimore City Commissioner of, of Health, Planned Parenthood's president, for many people, that might be the greatest job, the last job they do. Is your life a success if this is the last job that you do? Well, I'm, I just turned 36. So I know Cecile Richards was in this job for 12 years. 12 years later, if I'm able to have the incredible and successful tenure that she has had, I would be 48. <laughs> so I hope that this is not the last job that I will, that, that I will ever have. You know, I, I never defined my life as the job that I have. Actually, the only thing that I ever wanted to do was to be a physician. And I'm still proud to be a practicing physician now. I actually have a clinic day coming up tomorrow, in fact. Um, and I'm, I will always, that's always my, my primary identity is to serve patients and to treat patients. And that's to be trusted with people's lives in their time of need. So that's something that I will always go back to. Um, but I'm only two and a half months into my job now. And I am looking forward to working with my team here, Planned Parenthood, with our many champions in elected office, our, in our millions of supporters around the country in the months and the years to come, because there is so much work for us to do. There is huge unmet need when it comes to healthcare. We are one of few organizations that has a presence in all 50 states with a commitment to serve those who are the most vulnerable. There's so much work we have to do in healthcare, not to mention that we do have the fight of our lives happening right now. And this is the time to fight with everything we have because our health, our rights, our futures are on the line. Well, Dr. Lena Wen, we will see what you do leading Planned Parenthood in the months and years to come and in the fight for abortion rights. Thank you for joining the podcast. Thank you. That's it for Pulse Check this week. My thanks to Dr. Lena Wen of Planned Parenthood and the several Emilys in her office who helped make this interview happen. And on our end, producer Mikaela Rodriguez, social media guru Emily Goldberg for producing and promoting the show. You can find Pulse Check on all of your favorite podcast apps. Just search for Politico's Pulse Check. You can find me at ddiamond at politico.com with suggestions. You can find a new episode of the show in your podcast player next week.